Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi, and welcome back to a new episode after our summer break. I'm really happy you're back. This episode is very special because my guest is Graham Boyd, and he's the co-founder and executive director of PSFC, the Psychedelic Funders Collaborative. He's also the political director of Dr. Bronner's. Graham has spent his career fighting on behalf of social justice causes. Through his work advocating for those who have been marginalized, Graham was introduced to psychedelic science. Recognizing that those who will benefit from physician-prescribed MDMA and psilocybin are often suffering in silence, he brings his expertise from past efforts to help raise funds and resources to further the FDA process and bring needed relief to veterans, abuse survivors, and others who are struggling with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Graham and I talk about how the urge to fight changed into the desire to build after his own psychedelic experience. And, of course, we talk about bringing the MDMA MAPS research to Berlin and what it takes to do so. You can imagine, it takes money. <laughs> so we talk about the Capstone Challenge, the MAPS fundraiser Graham organized with Tim Ferriss, more infos in the show notes. And yes, we talk about money and how much money MAPS would need to start the MDMA research in Germany to turn MDMA into medicine. So that makes this episode a first serious fundraising effort. If you would like to participate in this and donating to MAPS, please write to global at maps.org, global at maps.org, or write to anne at thenewhealthclub.de for further information. I repeat, anne at thenewhealthclub.de. Or if you want to know more about the Capstone Challenge in America, please Google just Capstone Challenge Tim Block. You will land on Tim Ferriss' site and he will explain in his blog post how this worked in America. Or you just Google or go on capstone.maps.org where Maps actually will explain their strategy how to raise money with the Capstone Challenge. But now on to Graham and the podcast. Please enjoy. We're very excited to have Graham Boyd from Santa Cruz <laughs> on the Dr. Bronner's sponsored podcast today. And maybe you just quickly introduce yourself, because I think that's always a really good way to start. Sure. It's great to be here, Anne. Thank you. Um, it, it's really nice. So I'm I'm the political director at Dr. Bronner's, and I'll, I'll talk in a minute about what that means, because it's a really unusual uh position. It's not what political director means at most companies. And in addition to that, I am the founder of something called New Approach PAC. And that's the entity in the United States that has funded the majority of cannabis reform and also is now 
um, a, a big force behind the the um, state ballot initiatives dealing with psychedelics. And then finally, I'm the co-founder of the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. And this is a group of the leading philanthropists uh, in the United States and globally who are supporting psychedelic science. Okay, so that's a lot on your plate, it sounds like it. <laughs> Where do you want to no. start? First of all, like, what, what is a political director? I mean, that sounds like the coolest job. In the world. Sure. Well, so Dr. Bronner's uh, is a family-owned company. And so most companies have shareholders, and, and, and much of the impetus is to create economic return for the shareholders. Dr. Bronner's is family-owned, and they're committed to taking 100% of their profits that are not reinvested in the company, 100% of those profits, and actually trying to make the world a better place through that. So they give literally millions of dollars every year to a variety of causes. And it's not just individual philanthropy about helping a school or helping a music program somewhere. It's also about political change. And so what I do at Dr. Bronner's is to help direct the funds so that we can make big changes in the world, for instance, around psychedelics. So, you know, your usual political director would be going to Congress or to the parliament and trying to get laws that would help the company. But we see our stakeholders as being all of planet Earth, every single person, and we want to uplift um, society and, and really make the world a better place. So I'm very lucky to be able to do that job. Okay. So, um, and so you work in, in terms of, you know, decriminalizing psychedelics, I guess, in the context of Dr. Bronner's, but also on this, the foundation, you, or the, the collaborative that you founded, I guess, right? Right, that's right. So PSFC, Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative, is a group of philanthropists who have pledged at least $1 million to the field of psychedelic science. And we uh, currently are partnering with MAPS and Rick Doblin to raise $30 million for the Capstone Fund. And this is a fund which will allow MAPS to bring MDMA across the finish line as a medicine in the United States. And interestingly, by, by, by generating the data and getting approval in the United States, that same data can also be used in Canada and in Israel. So with this $30 million, we're, we are very confident we're going to succeed in making MDMA a medicine in those three countries. And we're almost at the finish line. We've, we've raised at this point, uh, probably between 28 and $29 million of the 30 million. And, um, and, and we have, people who are interested in finishing that. So as we finish the capstone campaign, we're also getting ready to launch the global campaign. And this is, I think, really literally the first time that we're talking to the public about this. Uh, the official launch will probably be in September. But if, um, if any of your, if any of your listeners are interested in getting involved, you know, sort of before the official launch, Email is at global at maps.org. It's a special email address we've set up. And, you know, what was really cool about the Capstone campaign is when we started, we already had lined up about $10 million in commitments from our longtime supporters. And that really kind of gave, you know, a boost to, to getting to the 30 million. And then very quickly, Tim Ferriss came on board with his podcast. So it's all about the podcast, Dan. <laughs> Tim came on board with his podcast. Raising money for you. Yeah. And, um, and, and put, and helped us arrange a challenge grant, uh, for another 10 million. And, and so now we've just been in this final stretch of getting, uh, donations to match that. So, We don't really know yet exactly how we're going to structure the global campaign, but I do know that having a handful of significant donors up front would be so helpful. And, you know, Europe is the beginning of that. So I, I you know, I know many of your listeners are, are in, uh, you're in Berlin and many of your, your audience are in Germany and the UK and elsewhere in Europe. And so if, if there are people out there who want to participate in this, let us know. We'd really love to have you. And how much, how much do you need still? Like a, a million, right? Is that what's left? For Capstone, it's, it's about a million. And, and I really honestly, by the time this podcast airs, I suspect we will have, um, completed 
the the United States portion. We're just so close um, and so excited about that. And that's why we need to start preparing for Europe, because for Europe and the global campaign, it's going to be a, a, approximately another 30 million that we need to raise. Um, and that's no small feat in a time where, you know, COVID-19 is demanding people's attention and also affecting their pocket. Uh, and, and, and yet the philanthropists and, and, and even, you know, small donors have really stepped forward. It's been, a, it's been a phenomenal thing to, to behold. So you're launching the European campaign, like you said, in September, right? It's, this will start in September. So, but walk us through how is this going to look like? I mean, so the, the aim of the whole kind of, like the, your your um, engagement is to to make MDMA into a medicine, right? I mean, this is the the topic you could say, or like the the meta project <laughs> where everybody's working on. So, let's say if that kind of trials and everything, if that's hitting Europe, so how will this look like? So you will start obviously with hospitals, like psychiatries, to collaborate, or maybe you could just explain a little bit what this actually will mean for people who are maybe even now just waiting for something like this. Sure, happy to. Well, let me take a couple of steps back and sort of give some context here. So, you know, I think this conversation starts with the recognition that we really are in a global mental health crisis right now. The, the levels of depression and anxiety and addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, they're, they're unparalleled and COVID-19 has only made that worse. And at the same time, we're in a period in which the, the, you know, I would say much of healthcare and much of wellness has experienced these incredible revolutions in treatments and in, including pharmaceutical um, approaches to many, many conditions, but not mental health. It's really stagnated. There's been a generation of development of SSRIs, which I think when they first arrived, you know, a generation ago were very exciting. But their efficacy has waned. And also there's a realization that they don't really heal the underlying condition, but more address the symptoms um, for depression and anxiety. So the truth is this epidemic of mental health problems doesn't really have any good solution. And that's where psychedelics come in as this very promising, different approach. So with MDMA... Um, the, the drug, you know, commonly known as Molly or ecstasy, but this is, but this is a pure version that's synthesized for medical use. And it's proving to be incredibly effective in addressing PTSD. So people who have trauma from combat or from a sexual assault, um, from childhood, um, abuse, those kinds of traumas can just be devastating to a person's entire life. I mean, it, 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 to the point that people can be just non-functional. It actually becomes and, worse the older you get. There's also another, um, I feel a lot of studies, just to, to, to include this, a lot of studies are showing that, let's say, if this is not addressed properly, meaning maybe only with antidepressants or the wrong therapy, it will actually become worse the older you get, right? It, it's true. I mean, it really is, in a sense, um, a, a, a life sentence of, of, of misery and, and actually for many people even suicide. So it's very serious and it's also very widespread. I mean, there are eight million people in the United States, and I assume that the numbers are similar in Europe, although I don't have them at hand, um, but millions of people who are affected by this. And so MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is really a a, a series of talk therapy sessions in which the uh, person is is trying to talk about the trauma. But if you're really traumatized, it's often hard to really get deep into that, to even talk about it. But with MDMA, it dampens the fear response. It creates more of a sense of trust and empathy, and you're able to actually talk about it. So the healing process, it's very real. And so to bring this substance, MDMA, into legal prescription uh, territory uh, is a regulatory process. You, you need to do years of clinical trials to show that it works, that it's effective, and you need to show that it's safe. And then you need to convince the regulatory agencies that all of this is 
true and replicable. And then eventually you get approval and then you have to figure out a way to deliver this care to all the people who would benefit. So we're pretty far down the road in the United States. MAPS is already in the final stages of the clinical trials and the money we've raised allows them to complete that. Now, Europe has a similar, so in, in the United States, it's the FDA, the, the federal, uh, what does FDA stand for? Federal Drug Administration, I guess. And in Europe, it's the EMA, the European Medical uh, Authority, and, and they um, will demand the same clinical trials take place in Europe. Um, the, the, the fact that they've happened in the United States is helpful, but it's not enough. And the clinical trials are expensive. So you, you're asking, where does it happen in hospitals and so forth? So MAPS is already laying the groundwork in a number of European countries, including Germany where there are therapy teams that are being trained and regulatory approval being obtained from each of the countries. And and it's sort of, I think of it as almost like starting to step up to the starting line. You know, there's a, there's a race to be run here, which is a few years of clinical trials, but there's all this preparation. So MAPS is already doing that. But once we arrive at the, at the starting line and want to do the trials, it, it costs millions of dollars. And so that's what we're going to uh, launch this fundraising campaign in September is to do the European and, and ultimately global trials. Um, but we, we think um, both at Dr. Bronner's MAPS, PSFC, we all think that if this is something that can help people who have PTSD and trauma, it should be available everywhere in the world, not just the United States, not just Europe, but everywhere. Mm. And I mean, let's say the studies are kind of, I mean, they will be successful because we already have studies that are successful. So, I mean, how do you think this is going to look like in the future? Like somebody, let's say, gets the diagnose of being depressed, like severely depressed, way more than he or she thought before. Um, or like, like you said earlier, there are many people who are on antidepressants, SSRIs for a long time and just, I mean don't want to engage in this any longer because it makes most people's life rather miserable, at least the people that I know. Um, it's a very tough thing that they have to go through with this, with on medication, without medication, different medication. So, I mean, just imagine the situation, like you are able to do this, like your psychiatrist could say, okay, if you want to take part in this so-and-so treatment, um, here is... I give you like a kind of subscription or something and you can go to this department and this and this psychiatry and undergo a treatment. So how long is this going to take? Is it like just a couple of sessions? Is it very, very individual from person to person, how much treatment they would need? And because I mean, with psilocybin, uh, there are these kind of just beginning, the, the studies that are just kind of, beginning to be being published now that it seems like you have to go twice a year, you would have to undergo a very, very high dose of psilocybin in a guided hospital situation. And that could eventually replace at one point your medication. But of course, it's not confirmed. It's just like what you could actually see right now in the development. So how do you think this is going to be with MDMA? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not exactly the same as psilocybin. The, the psilocybin clinical trials are at a somewhat earlier stage right now. They're in phase two, uh, to use the sort of regulatory terminology. And so that still is technically in a proof of concept phase. Uh, MDMA has already completed phase two. So the concept has been proven at one level, but then it needs to be replicated in phase three at a much larger scale. And, and, and what happens during the clinical trials, which will set the standard for eventual practice, is different than psilocybin. So let me, let me sort of walk you through it. Uh, initially, you, you, you start talk therapy with a psychologist or a psychotherapist that would be pretty much the same kind of therapy you might do for PTSD, which is, which is you're building trust with the therapist. And you're, you're trying to find a way to talk about the trauma itself. So um, if, if you watch um, the Goop episode on this with Jonathan Lebecki, right, a military veteran who had uh, tried to commit suicide, was really at, at five times. He was at his wit's end, literally. And 
And, and so the talk therapy that he began with Michael and Annie Mithoffer, uh, who were the, the MAPS therapist, begins with just, you know, Jonathan, tell me about your story. Tell me about what happened. And, and, and like most people, initially, it's very hard to talk about that. So you would have three or four weeks of those kinds of sessions of just building a relationship with the therapist. And then you, and those are maybe an hour each, those sessions. And then you would have one all day session in which you would ingest MDMA. So you're still in the same conversation with your therapist. And so here I'll draw a contrast. Psilocybin therapy, usually you have an eye mask on, you're listening to music. It's a very sort of interior experience where you need to feel that it's a safe surrounding with a therapist who, you know, has created that or helped sustain that safety, but it's interior with psilocybin. The MDMA session is interactive to a large extent. And so Jonathan, to you know, continue with his story, is talking to Michael and Annie, and he's finding that his fear response is kind of settling down some. So to talk about the combat experience normally would make him go into a panic. But MDMA makes you feel more calm, more secure, more trusting. And so Jonathan finds he can start to talk about this. And that happens during the first MDMA session. And then for another month, you have the weekly talk therapy. And then after that, another day-long session with MDMA. And then another month of talk therapy and potentially even a third one of those. So it's, it's re- it really spreads over three or four months. And it's a process of, of almost, I, I just picture that there's, you know, inside of us all this inner healing ability. But we get blocked. And MDMA and a good therapeutic relationship starts to kind of unlock that inner healer so that you can address the trauma. And in Jonathan's case, and now in the case of many other patients, at the end of this three or four months of therapy with assistance from MDMA, you find that you can actually look back on the traumatic incident and have a perspective that's not one of terror but one of understanding and you start to be able to move on with your life. So that, that's how the MDMA experience works. Okay. But I mean, like you say, I mean, it could be like somebody like a veteran who has experienced, I mean, people around him being killed probably because they were in the war. So, and, um, but also it could be like what we talked earlier from abuse, like sexual abuse or emotional abuse as a child And um, I find it interesting from my personal psychedelic experience that I re- started to remember things um, that I com- had really completely forgotten. Like, I mean, just talking LSD now in a guided situation and psilocybin in a guided situation. So, um, I mean, I kind of can imagine how this is like, you know, you've been to war, you kind of talk about what happened to you in your camp or when you were in the field and somebody or you had to kill somebody or you killed somebody could also be like a trauma um but i mean how does this play out in the context of people who let's say have sexual experience sexual abuse and don't really remember this or only vaguely and then something reminds them for some reason maybe even way later in their life um, because I don't know, maybe the parent that has abused the child is dying or just like, you know, something kind of comes up that makes them remember and suddenly the the trauma is back in um, in a very significant way. So can you talk about how this plays out in, in kind of an early abuse situation, how you can go through the same thing that John Lubecki went with his veteran story? I, I will, and I, and, I, and I'll say this: um, most people who experience trauma as an adult, even really extraordinary trauma like wartime trauma, uh, they will be traumatized for a period of time. But they, generally speaking, do return to something like normal. Right? P- PTSD doesn't happen automatically for people who experience trauma. And even when it does, for many people, it resolves. And something that has been found through the MAPS trials is that, is that people who have um, 
severe and non-responsive PTSD, like they're stuck, very often also have childhood trauma. So it's sort of like the childhood trauma sets a condition, a, a sort of vulnerability so that if at some later time, and it doesn't have to be you know, military combat, it could be you're robbed on the street or a person who's sexually assaulted or, you know, any number of things. I mean, most of us in our lives have something really awful happen at some point as a, as a, as an adult. But if there's the childhood abuse as a kind of background condition, it, 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 for many people sets up this intractable PTSD. And, and that's the sort of thing where MDMA can be so helpful in the talk therapy because the patient ends up talking not only about the adult trauma, but also the childhood stuff and, and really can kind of find more peace and understanding and, and a sort of empathy around all of that. That that's how the healing seems to unfold for people. And I mean, now we talk about all this great therapy, but of course the, the legal situation is always something that one wants to, forget about while talking about all these amazing therapies and the goop show <laughs> i mean right. like you know it's like oh no it's almost there it's like tomorrow we can all do it but i mean since you also you have like a legal background you're a lawyer also so how difficult is it actually even if you have these amazing results i mean at least in with the fda and then i think it's called like a breakthrough therapy right when you can actually go on a fast track so to approval so how difficult is it to be like kind of taking or paying attention to the whole legal framework because do you have to be like a total annoyance to people who make that decision or how do you navigate through this legal system Oh, I'm really glad you're asking that because it's, you know, no, it's, it's such an important part of the equation. And it's been interesting to listen to, um, you know, podcasts like yours and, you know, shows like Goop. I mean, the, the conversation around psychedelics, um, has a kind of, it, 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 it often is caught up with the promise of, of these substances, which is definitely part of the story. But we're operating in a context in which, there was also a period of great promise and hope in the 1960s and it all got shut down because of you know, to a certain degree cultural backlash but that manifested as political backlash and so the the drug laws in the united states which eventually were were sort of exported to most of the world but they started in the united states um really came about as a reaction to the original psychedelic renaissance uh, or the psychedelic, you know, blossoming of the 1960s. So the drug laws passed by Richard Nixon and then, you know, implemented in subsequent years have caused a, a just tragic growth in incarceration worldwide. And, and the United States really, you know, leads in that process. And so it, you know, it, it, it's not to be forgotten that the United States right now has 2.2 million people incarcerated. And of those, 21% are, in, are incarcerated for drug law violations. So let me put that in perspective. The population of the United States and the European Union is roughly equivalent. Europe has, a, has slightly more people. But the entire prison population in Europe is only about 500,000 people, which is the population of drug prisoners in the United States. And so, so we've, we've done this extraordinary thing in the United States of criminalizing and locking up people, um, because of drugs. And so that's our cultural background. That's our political background. And as we move forward with psychedelics, I think we have to be aware that there's, there's the potential for backlash again. So the approach has been very, very purposefully to make sure that science is at the forefront. So going to the FDA and seeking approval as a pharmaceutical drug is a very intentional strategy. Um, so that this is not a sort of, you know, Timothy Leary, drugs are awesome, everybody should use them. This is talking about the efficacy, just as I was about PTSD. I mean, when you hear that kind of story, you, you get it, right? So that's one part of the strategy. But 
we're also starting to explore, and the Oregon Initiative is is part of this. We're starting to explore just the reality that let's fast forward, say, five years, and MDMA and psilocybin are prescription drugs, and you can go to your psychiatrist and um, be prescribed the kind of therapy we're talking about. It will still remain the case that many people, I would say most people, are going to seek these experiences in a less medical context. I'm not saying that that should be the case, just that it is the case. If you read Michael Pollan's book and you watch The Goop Show and you think, I'd like to have one of these experiences, but I don't have intractable PTSD, I don't have you know soul-crushing depression, but I do have maybe some depression, and I'm interested in personal growth, you're going to seek out those experiences. And I believe that even those experiences should be done in a way that is regulated, that the guides are qualified, that they're skilled, that they're experienced. And, and right now, you know, whether you're in Berlin or in Santa Cruz, if, if you have a friend who wanted to have a psilocybin experience, you would have to basically say, well, good luck finding somebody, and they would find someone who maybe is awesome, but they might find somebody who's a complete charlatan and who might actually do them harm. So the Oregon Initiative is about creating a regulatory program where the psilocybin guides have to actually go through extensive training certification. And then the psilocybin experience, which would be legal under Oregon law, would be in the hands of somebody who has these sorts of licenses. Uh, the source of the psilocybin would be safe and regulated, and you wouldn't be able to take it home or drive under the influence. Children couldn't participate. So in other words, there kind of ends up developing these two different channels. One is the prescription drug um, context for the people who are, I would say, most seriously uh, affected, you know, who have a real diagnosis. But then there's also the licensed guide context in Oregon. And I actually just got an email this morning. I hope Amanda doesn't mind me sharing this. I don't think she would, but your, your previous guest, Amanda Fielding, emailed me this morning and, and said that she was going to personally write a check in support of the Oregon initiative and was recommending it to many of her friends. And, um, and so this is – I would recommend to your, to your listeners, go to the yesonip34.org website. Let me double-check that. Yeah, yesonip34.org. Yeah. And so the, the website gives the information, and Dr. Bronner's just pledged earlier this week $1.5 million in support of this campaign as a challenge grant. So if we can raise another $1.5 million from all of the rest of the world – Dr. Bronner's will give $1.5 million to this campaign, and Amanda's, I guess, the first person to sign up and raise her hand and say she's going to join that. So it's, it's, it's exciting because it, it broadens the scope, and yet it's also cautious, right? This is not Timothy Leary stuff. This is about regulated, controlled, careful, responsible use, but broadening it beyond just severe depression. So that, that's what the Oregon campaign's about. Okay. But I mean, let's uh, come back a little bit to Europe because I feel, <clears throat> sorry, I feel that, um, like you just said earlier, like there's this, let's say, the depression department where people just trying to look into other treatments mm -hmm. or actually experiencing the cure of their trauma instead of just pushing it away with or like suppressing it with SSRIs. But I feel also, and I get requests also from magazines now talking about this, that this other direction, like, or let this other tool, um, to look at it as a tool to answer yourself um, bigger questions in life uh, that you maybe can't answer with a 5,000 euro coach per month, for example, that right. after you leave the practice or the, the coaching, you will not react to this anymore because your brain is just not kind of changed after. <laughs> I feel it's like so interesting that there are so many therapists or coaches right now. And um, I think it makes always total sense when you, while you talk to them, while you sit with them and it's like, yeah, yeah, of course I should do this. 
But the moment, like, let's say a couple of months after the, the coaching, it kind of evaporates in thin air almost what you learned there. So that's why I think a lot of people um, suddenly start to get interested in um, looking into experiences like synthesis, for example, in, in Amsterdam, which I'm a very big fan of the way they actually execute this. Um, so, and actually a neighbor of mine, um, she just went to synthesis because she wanted to make a decision between two jobs. So she kind of used the psychedelic experience, the guided safe psychedelic experience to make the decision. And um, after you make a decision, after such an experience, you're pretty sure going to make the right decision because everything that you need to answer is basically in you and you will know after this. So let's, if, if we talk about Europe, so uh, what is your perception? Is this something that is more, let's say, popular in Europe than in America or if it comes to, let's say, a new culture of psychedelics in your perception, or is it basically everywhere the same, that people start to get interested in using this as, um, yeah, as, an, as a modern tool to go through life, basically? Well, I, I think clearly it, it, is, it is rising in popularity in both Europe and the United States. And, you know, the reasons for that, I think, are manifold. And certainly Michael Pollan's book has been a, an important influence in the United States. Um, I, it, it also just seems to be percolating up through the groundwater in a sense. I mean, your podcast is a great example of this. I mean, a year ago you were talking about other things, but, but, but this is what you're talking about now. Um, how it's going to unfold in Europe, though, is a really interesting question. I mean, uh, Europe is different than the United States in the sense that the, the sort of intensity of drug law enforcement in Europe is just not the same. There, there, is, a, there is much more tolerance for, um, for, I would say, you know, kind of low-level activities, and, and also the concept of harm reduction is embraced um, more so in Europe. Um, you know, Amsterdam is exceptional. Amsterdam is a place where, you know, uh, for a long time with cannabis and and now with truffles, there is a, an open, not just tolerance, but but legality for, you know, open commercial activity in those areas. And, and you know, I don't think that's happening in the very near future elsewhere in Europe. Um, but it but it's an interesting question of like, to what extent will different parts of Europe tolerate less formal activities if there if there are guides who are you know offering psychedelic experiences you know in berlin are the german police going to be you know sparing no effort to track them down i don't think so no i mean i, I mean and then also i mean there are these platforms for example um retreat guru and it's like you could book yourself now in like a 20-day ayahuasca retreat but you wouldn't know what you're getting yourself into. But you, right. you, of course, it would be in Peru and it would not be in in, in, um, in Russia probably. But of course, like in Europe, it's kind of a, there is kind of, I'm not going to say like subculture because that would be the, the wrong world. But there's kind of a gray zone in a lot of countries where actually also people are executing these things who are experienced. But um, they can't, of course, advertise what they doing. I mean, I get a couple of emails uh, once a month from interesting enough, like very like high end doctors who were in big hospitals for a long time and they're now retired. And they wrote me like, well, with some patients where I thought it makes sense, I undertook these mushroom trips, for example. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting what there's this underlying world, even with people who take this very seriously and don't take it as like some spiritual um weird thing connected to some other weird spiritual like so-called spiritual ideas so there are there's actually a group of people who is engaging it is for a long time but of course totally in secret or just like you know communicating this to another person that it's their patient or something but i mean um of course we have to know in in every podcast like this how you got into this whole topic because um, 
it's mostly not just by accident that somebody <laughs> stumbles into psychedelics. <laughs> it's true. I, I'll answer that in a, in a second, but I want to say one more thing about Europe and the situation you're describing there. It's um, th There are two major downsides to having the sort of informal underground situation, even if it ends up being tolerated by, by law enforcement. There are two downsides to it. One is that there's no standard setting for what constitutes good and responsible uh, care. Uh, there, there absolutely are people in the underground who are very, very qualified, but there's no guarantee of that. And so, uh, you know, bad quality leads to bad outcomes. And these are not harmless substances. They're, they're not, they're not uh, addictive, but, uh, but, but, You know, I, I mean, I guess to give one example, I know of somebody who went to an underground therapist who who is bipolar, and the and the underground person basically said, "Just stop taking your medication; it'll be fine, and we'll and we'll have a you know psychedelic experience." And she ended up just totally crashing and ending up, you know, um, bad things happened to her because of that. So, so you want to have well qualified people. So that standard setting. Um, should happen in in Europe too. I don't know how to do this, but there should be some standard setting for what counts as a as a good guide. And then the other downside is that it ends up being something that 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 really doesn't have equity and access. It in, you know if there are a handful of doctors you know providing this experience to their very special patients, it really becomes something that privileged people have access to. And sure. You know that's part of the appeal of the Oregon model is is it it both has the you know really very real qualifications and licensing um, so that you know what you're getting and there'll be equity and access for people. It's not going to be something just for people who are privileged. So I I'm I'm you know I would say I'm I'm totally open to conversations of folks in Europe about what's the European way to get at that, but I think it's super important. Yeah. So you wanted to talk about my experiences. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I grew up as a really, really square kid. I grew up in South Carolina, which is a very, you know, sort of conservative part of the United States and was really affected by what I saw as the racial injustices of, of that part of the country when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And I went to college and then to law school really with a passion to address racial injustice. And I, in fact, I lived in South Africa and worked at the Legal Resources Center, which is a human rights organization there during the transition from apartheid and was involved in, in that in a bunch of interesting ways. So for, I'd say, the first chapter of my adult life, I was involved in issues like immigration and homelessness and, and, you know, Haitian refugees who were being sent back to Haiti by the American government, all these things that had nothing to do with drugs, but were very much about race. And somewhere along the way, it dawned on me that maybe the most racist thing that our country, the United States, does is the enforcement of drug laws. Um, if you read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, it really is a moving case for how we replicate many of the aspects of slavery and Jim Crow through enforcement of the drug laws against African-Americans. And so that that has been my passion through a lot of my adult life. And I, you know, I've run dozens of campaigns to change the cannabis laws as somebody who had never tried cannabis. So like I said, sort of square. Yeah. And 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 I came to psychedelics in a similar way. I'm just very moved by the impact that it can have um, for people and just sort of outraged by the injustice of denying people at that access. But, but I did, uh, um, I did have a guided psilocybin experience a couple of years ago. And it, it really, I think for me, you know, I don't consider myself a person who's struggled with, with depression and feel very fortunate for that, that I sort of my mental health stability is pretty, pretty solid. But it really helped me reorient from, I would say, a lot of my my life's work up until that point had been trying to fight against a racist system, you know, a, a sort of battle mentality of being up against something that's bad and wanting to defeat it, to beat it. And I feel like I'm moving more into a healing and, you know, as Dr. Bronner's would say, sort of all one mentality. I'm interested in building 
a system that will deliver psychedelic healthcare experiences and wellness experiences to all who could benefit rather than trying to battle against whoever's trying to stop that. So it, I, I don't know. I guess, I mean, to, to be really kind of new agey about it, but I, but, but I, but I mean this, I think it's really opened up my heart in a lot of ways and, and made me still fierce in dedication to what I'm doing, but with also sort of a softer approach to it. Well, I mean, battling is basically a different word for ego, right? I mean, if you want, you yes. could say it that way, <laughs> just a theory, a German theory. <laughs> But I mean, oh, it, I, yeah, and, then, and then building is not an ego because if you build something, you can't build it alone. It's like a total community approach to things. So, but I feel what you just described, I think that's what a lot of people that I talked to who had that experience, um, I think that was the biggest shift always that they kind of had this, like let's say even their fight or flight mechanism disappeared after this. And also their, their, um, their kind of idea of life that you have to fight for everything. And that basically you're always like in an armor and because there are all these people outside who would like to destroy you, which is something I feel that um, like in the Western, I mean, the Western culture and in your, in your normal job surrounding, whatever you do, this is something you kind of, that storytelling is something you learn that you always have to be the best and um, to be the best, you have to fight other people and so on. And, but I, I think that's, that's a very, um, it's a very, profound um, experience, what you just described, that I think what a lot of people more or less have if they come out of this, of their mostly psilocybin experience, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I would also add, I think for me, an important part of the story is that I started a meditation practice um, before I had the psilocybin experience. And so I, I feel like I was laying a lot of groundwork for this shift. And after the psilocybin experience, I think my meditation practice deepened. And I, I'm not a regular um, uh, user of psychedelics at all, but I am a regular meditator. And I think that, that meditation has much of that same kind of impact of loosening of the ego, of allowing you to kind of source your own value from something other than external approval uh, and not needing to be in a fight, but be more into the cooperative mode. So, you know, if I had advice for, for anyone who was looking at this sort of path is include meditation in it. it it's um, it, it makes it much more sustainable and sustaining, I think. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, but, Let's quickly come back to, to, to Europe and to the MDMA trials that you will start. Sure. I think what a lot of people are interested in is, is it possible to get into studies? And if, how could people actually proceed with their request? Because, I mean, of course, this is a big topic. Also, when we talk to Imperial College, um, to Robin Card Harris, I mean, this is always like this, what you said earlier, it's like the, the hope is very high. It's like, wow, we have these results. But then the people who can actually take part in a study like this is super small, the amount of people. And the same thing, I think, goes for the, um, the psychiatry department in, in, in Mannheim. When I talked to the professor, the same thing. He said that normally up to two or 300 people um, would actually agree to take part in a study. And I think he said something like five or 6,000 this time for that study. So how is this, how will this play out in a European context? If MAPS is saying, okay, we have the first study in the so-and-so university clinic or like, like Charité, I think also has something to do with it. So how do you work around this? Well, I, I think it's important to understand clinical trials are not an avenue of, 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 of people having access to a treatment. It's really, it's a venue, it's a, it's a venue for, um, finding out safety and efficacy for the treatment. And so, you know, in the U.S. context, eight million people have PTSD. 200 people are participating in these trials. So it's, it's a fraction of, of a 
fraction of a percent that get to do this. And also these trials are placebo controlled. So when you sign up for a trial, you might be signing up to get a sugar pill. Um, and some of them do after the trial give you the opportunity to receive the actual substance um, so that people won't be discouraged. But, you know, the numbers in Europe for the MDMA trial that MAPS will be doing are, it, it will just be a tiny handful. It'll be a, you know, a few hundred at most. And, you know, so what, what I would say is we're really looking towards a future that's three or four years away, I hope, in which MDMA becomes broadly accessible as a prescription substance. And I am really committed to finding a way that MDMA and psilocybin and other substances are available under what I would call the Oregon model. You know, so again, restrictions and rules and qualifications, but um, also just a recognition of the reality that for many people, that's going to be the avenue that they choose. And I'd rather it be safe than a free-for-all. Sure. And um, what do you think has to happen in Europe? I mean, as in America, we have, a, like I said, you have a different uh, system and there are already some things have, have already been approved or like you have a different understanding now of this. What do you think from your perspective has to happen in Europe or let's say even Germany at this point, because we're talking about Germany right now, um, to make this, let's say, fast track approved? <laughs> sure. Well, I, I mean, you know, a, a few things come to mind. So um, it, One thing is acting locally. So this, this is a slightly different example, but there, there are a few different um, places in Switzerland where the locality, the canton, has decided that they wanted to allow for safe um, injection sites for heroin users. So heroin is illegal, and yet a place where the government would say you could come here and safely consume this illegal drug and at the same time have access to treatment and to harm reduction and clean syringes. Now, that is very radical by most world standards. So I don't, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know the German system well enough to venture an actual answer, but I wonder what would happen if in Berlin there were a conversation <clears throat> among people who are looking to responsibly provide psychedelic therapy and the, the the municipal authorities, including law enforcement, and basically starting a conversation saying, for the safety of everyone involved, we'd rather do this openly and with permission, at least knowing that no one's going to be arrested, and with some standards about what kind of training and safety guidelines need to be there. And if You know, I, I understand because of sort of the local rule issues in Switzerland, it's technically easier to do that than in a federal system like Germany. But, you know, there's always there's always the possibility of basically working something out with the people who are in charge. And it's yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I think Berlin, Berlin might be even the place in Germany where this is probably, I mean, I would say the most likely because let's say the openness to certain things is maybe different than, I mean, I hope I don't make any enemies now, like in Hamburg, <laughs> for example. Right. Your entire Hamburg audience just You're like, bye. But I mean, it's interesting what you say with Switzerland, because I mean, obviously it's not only that, because I mean, like Basel is becoming again, such a big center for psychedelic research again. So And I mean, this is actually an interesting idea that the local, like this idea that some local localities like like cantons or like Bundesländer here, like like states in Germany could actually um, engage in this in, in, in a different way than another state in that country. So I think that that's a very interesting thought. I never. And it happens, you know, I mean, I think, again, to grossly stereotype, but I think Northern Europe is more um, likely to be leading on this than, than Southern Europe. I mean, um, Copenhagen has for a long time had, um, a different policy around cannabis than the country as a whole. And so, you know, I think there are examples of, and, and honestly, I think it's important to do this in a way that's not trying to make some big grand political statement, you know, not like trying to get the attention of the world media, but working it out on a local level 
so that it is emphasizing safety. Um, because I mean, who can be against that? If you, it, the, the public health frame, I think is very appealing in Germany more so than the prohibitionist or moralistic frame. So I, I feel hopeful, even though I don't know exactly what that pathway well, is. Well, I mean, like. at least the, um, the health minister who has done a really great job in, in Corona times, Jens Spahn, he got interviewed in January after we, we were on a panel, um, Christian Angermeyer, Robin, Kat Harris and me and, and uh, Christina Falcone, we talked about psychedelics. And shortly after this panel, the journalist interviewed Jens Spahn for a big German kind of magazine focus. And he actually asked about his attitude towards psilocybin treatment for for depression. And he was, he didn't say like, Oh God, I could never think about this. This is like out of question. So, but, but he said like, we're looking into roughly put pull this together now, but he said like one would actually look towards America and see how progress, what progress is being made. So, but I thought it was interesting that he didn't say like, well, you know, this is like in another 20 years. So, I mean, just in po political speech, of course, but just, <laughs> he was kind of, I'm not going to say he was open because he couldn't, but it was not like a complete, um, kind of rejection of this. So, right. and I think people like him who are maybe also coming from a new generation who totally see that there is um, a really big opportunity to also help your health system, your national health system by kind of uh, getting rid of a big number of, of uh, depressed people uh, or to help them actually to, to lead a normal life again. So I think this... In the next two years, there will be different thought patterns also around this, I feel, with a new generation of politicians also, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one piece of, 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 I guess, potential help that I can offer is that Dr. Bronner's has been supporting local movements in the United States that have been trying to work out these kinds of arrangements um, with, with local authorities. So Oakland and Denver and the District of Columbia. And I am confident that if a group of people came together in Berlin or elsewhere that wanted to do this kind of local working out of things, that's something Dr. Bronner's would be very interested in supporting. So, you know, reach out to me about that. I, I, I know somebody. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, let's stay in conversation about this, Anne, because I think it's, um, I love doing the work that's transnational in the sense that we can learn from each other and, and advance globally by making little baby steps in each place where we're, where we're involved. Yeah. No, no, definitely. But I think it's, it, sometimes it seems that like a different generation already doesn't have this storytelling anymore about psychedelics because they just didn't grow up with that kind of sixties crazy Woodstock acid kind of cultural references they just they just don't even know what that is often kind of i think that's actually a good thing i really do be, be, because i think that the that the story from the previous generation was basically one of everyone should just take as many of these drugs as they can get their hands on and things will definitely be better and i don't believe that's true I, I think these are really powerful substances that, that it's important to have a, a, a container, a setting in which um, there's a feeling of safety. And, and it's important to have medical screening. These, these drugs are not for everybody. They really aren't. They, it can be downright dangerous for some people to use them. So, so it, 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 there needs to be a kind of overlay of responsibility that then melds with the sense of like, freedom and growth and love that, that these, that these substances inspire. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect kind of last words to this. <laughs> of course we could go on for the next probably three hours, I guess, um, because there's so much to talk about. I mean, I feel I have addressed like 20% of what I wanted to ask you, but I mean, you can come back on a show maybe in a couple of months. I mean, actually in September, actually, because to have like a, you know, like, um, like an actual moment when this, when this, um, kind of campaign starts here. So we can do like yeah. a special, a special show about this or even a YouTube show then at that point. Terrific. 
Well, it would be my pleasure. And I thank you so much for doing this series. I think it's really important what you're doing and um, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Look forward to the future episodes. Perfect. And um, it was great to have you on the show and um, we'll be in touch with more show dates for you, I guess. Sounds great. Okay. Take care. Be well. When Graham and I recorded the episode, as you know, the Capstone Challenge was in full swing. And we're very happy to announce that in the meantime, a week ago, the Capstone Challenge has been completed. And the so-called Psychedelic Research Fundraising Campaign, the Capstone Campaign, attracts or attracted last week 30 million in donations in just six months and will prepare the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for FDA approval. And Tim Ferriss helped doing this, MAPS helped doing this, the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative that was founded or co-founded by Graham helped to do this. So a couple of people just started to <laughs> raise $30 million, so which means in Germany we have the opportunity and the task to do this too, to have the same way or to go the same way as MAPS did. And um, if that therapy should be approved by the FDA, it would be the first ever psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to earn approval from the FDA. So this would be a very big step in the coming psychedelic renaissance and revolution, you could almost say in the meantime. So if you want to keep updated with all these things, please subscribe to our newsletter, go to our website, thenewhealthclub.de, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we talk and see you on YouTube also, on, your, on our YouTube channel next week. Talk to you soon. Bye.